morning. I would uh, rather hear Pastor Glenn this morning, I think, but uh, you get me, so, uh, but I'm really glad to be here. Um, we, uh, as Josh said, we, um, I, I've been at Sterling Park for about four years now, almost four years, uh, really grateful to be there and grateful for our, uh, at least my growing partnership here with Hamilton Baptist. I have a lot of respect uh, and admiration for this church, uh, for your pastors, uh, the way they do life and ministry, and so it's really good to actually meet you all here this morning. Um, so I uh, just, I guess before we jump in, I'll just let you know I have a contentious relationship with these microphones, and uh, they tend to run away from me, but I will try to keep it here and not be distracted if you aren't. Um, and, uh, but before we, before we jump in, let's, let's go ahead to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask for his blessing as we open God's word. Father, we, we worship you this morning, and as we come to sit under your word, we ask that you would, by your, your Holy Spirit, uh, work in us. Uh, Father, we ask that you would not let us leave here the, the same way that we came. We pray that you would convict us, uh, encourage us, exhort us, uh, mold and fashion us when we, we want uh, even our desires to be more conformed to what you want for us. We, we know that we come in with desires that are all over the place. We need your help. We come in with affections that are all over the place, and we need more affection for Jesus. So, fathers, we sit under your word. We pray that you would do a, a good work in us, mold us, fashion us for your glory, for all eternity, for the good of your church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I believe the page numbers are actually the same as those we use at Sterling Park, so that's page 970, I believe, of the the Pew Bible in front of you. I was even encouraged uh, this morning as we were reading, I mean, as we're singing the the hymn, uh, We Believe, uh, for our order of worship at Sterling Park this morning, we're confessing a Nicene Creed together, so I, I get... I get the creeds, I get the truth of the gospel wherever I'm at this morning, so I'm just really grateful for the common truth and affection that we share in Jesus. I wonder as you come in here this morning, I wonder if you feel weak. You know, is a, is a Christian supposed to be weak or strong? It's almost a false question, isn't it? Well, that's some, somewhat of the question that we get to when we come to the book of 2 Corinthians, in particular 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So my guess is that in all likelihood, this is a familiar passage for many of us who have been in the church for a little while. So there's some key verses tucked into 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10 that we often refer to. But we're obviously kind of jumping right into the middle or the end uh, of this letter. That is the end of a monologue or uh, an argument that's being made over many chapters. So what I want us to do is kind of set a little context for what exactly is going on here in 2 Corinthians. And to do that, I think it might be helpful for us to kind of have a little hypothetical um, thought experiment, so to speak. So so just imagine for a minute that, that Pastor Stephen and Pastor Josh left Hamilton Baptist on kind of a temporary sabbatical. Actually, imagine that all the elders of Hamilton Baptist left on this temporary sabbatical. So point is, all the pastors, all the leadership is gone from this church for a time. So they've left things in good order, and they're planning to return after some time. So the church is here, 
but there's no formal leadership. And while the pastors are away, some, some leaders from another group hear that Hamilton Baptist is actually in need of some leadership, some pulpit supply, and so they graciously offer their hand, and, and needing someone to kind of fill the pulpit, the church uh, grants their requests, and they agree. So these, these guest preachers come in, and actually, it's good. And it's not, it's not just good, actually, it's great. These guys are amazing preachers. They're winsome, they're funny, they're articulate, they're powerful when they preach, they're filled with emotion, which you would assume is surely a sign of the Spirit's work in them. And honestly, as you go throughout the weeks, compared to the pastors who used to preach, these guys are basically professional speakers. Your mind is blown seemingly every week. And so, instead of the church shrinking while the pastors are away, actually the church is growing, at least in number. More and more people are coming to hear these amazing preachers who are now set up at this church. And all is good, and the only problem is that the content of their preaching doesn't exactly line up with what you're used to hearing. The gospel they preach, the way they speak about Jesus is different. But the power with which they preach, the growth, the emotion, I mean, who could argue with those signs? And actually, these new preachers are really honest about things. They even tell the church that the message they used to hear was different. Boy, they don't say different. They say that it was incomplete. And they actually tell the people that their old pastors weren't as winsome, they weren't as effective Because they weren't actually the ones who were called by God. And that's why they were so apparently weak. But these new guys, they claim, they are the true sent ones. They are the true apostles. So what happens is that over the course of a few months, the church really grows to love these new leaders. They begin to adopt this new teaching, this new gospel, this new Jesus. And naturally, at the same time, they begin to disregard and distrust their old, weak pastors and their old, tired, seemingly powerless gospel. Now, thankfully, this is just a hypothetical situation here regarding Hamilton Baptists, but here's the thing. This was not a hypothetical situation for the church in Corinth. This is what was happening between Paul and this church that he had established. This was the occasion of the writing, one of the occasions of the writing of the letter of 2 Corinthians. So Paul, as you know, just brief primer, he'd been set, set apart by Jesus, saved by Jesus, set apart by Jesus as an apostle to make disciples, plant churches where there were none. And this is what he'd done in the church, in the city of Corinth. So he'd spent a few years in the city teaching, training, discipling, building up this body, and then he'd moved on to do it again in another place, just like he did. So he left things, he thought, in relatively good order. But then, Paul, you just imagine this, Paul gets word. Not only is this church struggling with sexual sin, not only are they wavering in their promised financial commitments to other churches who are relying on them, but now word is getting to him, oh, by the way, Paul, we're actually not sure if we trust you and your apostleship anymore. 
They send word and they say, you see, there's some other guys here, some new guys, and they're really great. Actually, they seem better. They seem more put together than you. They're more polished. They're more articulate. They're more powerful than you. They seem like they're the actual sent ones from God. And they're saying some things that actually contradict what you say. And guess what, Paul? We actually kind of believe them. Okay, so given, the, given kind of this big picture, can you just kind of begin to feel what this would do to the Apostle Paul? I mean, you're, you're kidding me, right? But they weren't kidding. This is the truth. So false apostles had come into Corinth, and they were impressive. And in comparison with Paul, or in comparison with them, Paul and his gospel just seemed weak. And so you can see this predicament that Paul is in as he writes these letters. It's a terribly awkward situation for Paul to be in. So on the one hand, Paul doesn't care in the least. It doesn't matter to Paul in the least what these people say about him. But on the other hand, if the church in Corinth starts disbelieving Paul because they think he lacks some kind of authority or power, then they could actually turn not just against him, they could turn against the gospel. They could prove that they never were really the church at all. And this is what greatly unsettles Paul. So Paul is left with this uncomfortable need for the sake of the gospel to defend himself, to boast like a fool, he says, to prove his authority, his power, to the very church that he started. So that's what's happening, particularly in, these, in chapters 10 through 12, leading up to the passage this morning. So the issue at hand, you could say, is one of strength. And the question at hand is, whose strength ought to be on display in a true apostle? In other words, what would a, what would a true minister of the gospel boast in? The gospel, the gospel was at stake in the type of ministers the church submitted themselves to, and it still is. And that brings us to chapter 12, kind of the climax of this argument and a picture, I'm going to say, of proper boasting. So look there, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 for us. Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, 
hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right, so in light of the church's situation, in light of their struggle with whom to believe, Paul displays true godly power. And he's doing that by helping them to see two points, and that's what I want to see this morning. He helps them to see pointless boasting, and he helps them to see proper boasting. So the first thing I want to see is pointless or powerless boasting. And that is the type of boasting that boasts in personal strengths and experiences. Personal strengths in experience. So to boast in this book means simply to kind of highlight a certain part of a person's life. So it's like taking a flashlight and pointing at a certain part of your life as if to say, don't worry about those other parts of me, look at, look at this part. So in a sense, every minister, every person alive, every person here this morning will boast in, will point to, highlight something about themselves. So Paul first wants to show the church that boasting in personal strengths and weaknesses, anything else that a person might have done, is pointless. It's powerless. It brings no fruit. So how does he prove this? Well, he, what he does is Paul actually plays their game for a little while. This is what he's doing in chapters 10 and 11. If you look back at chapter 11, verse 17 through 19, he says this. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. Seems that Paul is kind of making full use of his sarcastic license in the book of 2 Corinthians. You get what he's saying there? He's saying, okay, since you're so open to to hearing fools about their strengths and gifts and ministries, well, let me tell you about me. I'll, I'll make myself a fool for you. I'll boast about my lineage, my religion, my being persecuted, the churches I've planted. He's saying, is that what you want? Well, then he says, guess what? It's all foolish. It doesn't matter one bit. I think the point he's making here is that a a pastor's credentials don't actually give him strength. That's why he comes to chapter chapter 12, verse 1, and simply says this. I must go on boasting. That is for their sake, because that's all they hear. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I must go on boasting, because evidently that's what you want in an apostle. But know this. There's nothing to be gained. It's fruitless. Still, he flatters them, doesn't he? He goes on in verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on. On to what? to visions and revelations of the Lord. So what's he doing here? Well, I think what he's doing is he's kind of painting a picture here of what, what would be the most amazing experience that an apostle could boast about. So if, if someone comes to a church and wants to get the church's attention, what's the most amazing thing that he could tell them that he has experienced? Well, how about the fact that he's personally received visions from God? That'd be pretty high on my list. I don't know about you. And so he says, well, I'll go there if that's what you need to hear. Verse 2, he says this. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. All right, so to press into kind of the pointlessness 
of an apostle boasting in his personal experiences, his strengths. Paul speaks of what would seemingly be the most powerful, most authoritative experience that a person, an apostle, could have. That is a personal visit to heaven. So Paul starts a a bit oddly here to speak in the third person about a man that he knows. And this man, he says, was taken up into heaven. So whether, whether it was physically in the body, like his body was taken to heaven or not, he doesn't, he doesn't quite know. He says only God knows. Point is, this man was taken up into heaven, into paradise, and he heard things that cannot even be spoken to another person. All right, so just a couple of observations. So, so first, Paul's clearly talking about himself in this passage. So we know that from, from verse 7 where he talks about God and his desire to keep Paul humble because of the greatness of the revelations that had been given to him. Yet again, you see how Paul's just so uncomfortable coming out and saying that he experienced themselves, these things himself because he's really not supposed to even be talking about them. So Paul saw and heard things that he says cannot even be spoken to other men about. So he speaks in the third person. He says, I know this guy that went to heaven. Secondly, and more to the point, it goes without saying that kind of getting caught up into heaven is an amazing experience. So we don't know exactly what this looked like. We don't really know what, means by, what he means by the third heaven. All we know here is that what Paul is talking about is experiencing heaven. And his point seems to be that if there were ever something worth bragging about as an apostle, this is it. So if you're a pastor, if you're a speaker, and want people to kind of sense your authority and listen to you, this is the card that you play. You tell people, I went to heaven. That makes you an expert in all things spiritual, doesn't it? So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, uh, the comedian Brian Regan. So that guy's a, uh, he's a favorite in our house. So he has, this, he has this one bit where he talks about how awesome it would be to be one of the few men who have actually walked on the moon. Because if you've walked on the moon, you have the ultimate trump card at any kind of dinner party story time, right? So you're at some kind of dinner party. He's kind of painting this picture. You're telling, you know, somebody's telling the group about how great they are, how, how well their company's doing, all this type of stuff. And, and you let them talk and, you know, you wait till they finish. And then you just calmly swoop in with, oh, yeah, well, I walked on the moon. And it's the ultimate trump card, right? So nobody's topping your story at that point. And it's a bit like that here with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul has that card to play at any time against any kind of self-proclaimed super apostle. So if they're talking a big game about how great their gifts are, how great their ministries are, how many people they're seeing come to the front, all these type things, Paul could just swoop in at any time and say, well, really, I went to heaven. So you can see how, how striking Paul's point is here because he's saying that even though it's true, He's not denying it. Even though it's true, he's not boasting in it. Because even though it's an awesome fact, there's actually no strength in it for his hearers. It'd be pointless to boast, even in such an experience. Because think about it. After all, what would boasting in such an experience do? Well, in all likelihood, it would cause people to worship the apostle not the apostles' God, which is exactly what the false apostles were doing, and it's exactly what Paul is trying to avoid in these letters. Look at verse 6. He says, 
If I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But what? I refrain from it. Why? So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. It's interesting what being in the presence of God will do to a man, isn't it? Paul had been there. He had been in the presence of God. And now he was terrified of the possibility that as an apostle, he could lead people to worship him rather than worshiping Jesus. So he refuses to participate in kind of this self-aggrandizing boasting. And he's trying, to, trying so desperately to get the church to see its foolishness as well. And he's trying to get us to see it here too, church. And that is the question of what, what kind of spiritual guides are we impressed with in our lives? You know, one, one dead giveaway, at least that you're on the track of following a false apostle or false teacher then and now, is that you hear them mention Jesus, but what you're really impressed with is them. Listen, we need pastors and teachers and guides in the Christian life. The Bible makes that clear, and God so graciously gives them to us. But listen, their role is never to draw people to themselves, but always to point people past themselves and to Christ. Because even though they may speak like it, no pastor, no conference speaker, no church leader has ever left heaven and condescended to us. No, no pastor has ever lived a perfect life worthy of glorying in. No pastor has ever died in your place and atoned for, taken away your sin. No pastor has ever risen from the dead in order to pay the price for your sins. No pastor has ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God. No minister can save you. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, guys, people are not that great, but look at Jesus Only Jesus has done all this, and only Jesus can save people from their sins. So if they're self-proclaimed Christian teachers or leaders that we follow because they seem so amazing, just listen to them. They're so amazing. They're so emotional. They're all these things. But when you stop and think about it, they've never actually pointed you to trust more in Jesus. Well, then we either got to stop listening to them or stop calling them Christian. I think in the Christian life, listen, life in this fallen world is hard. It's hard. There's no doubt about it for a million different reasons. And so for that, we tend to start looking for experts, don't we? But I think we've got to be careful in looking for experts. You know, it's, it's good to have experts, professionals in many areas of life. We need them, right? So we need experts in medicine, business, coffee. That's great. But here's the truth that we just need to know and hold on to. And that is that there are no experts in the Christian life. It's what Paul is trying to get them to see. People are so desperate. desperate. So in this time, you just feel it. They're so desperate for an expert apostle, an expert pastor. But there are none. There's just Jesus. And if there's anything professional, anything um, expert about a pastor, it's a pastor who points you to trust in Christ, to the one who can save you. So this is point one. So it's, what we're seeing is pointless, powerless boasting, which is making most of personal strengths, personal experiences. 
Because what these things do is they cause people to be enamored with men. But what's the alternative? So how in the world is he going to convince people they should hear him rather than these more impressive people who were legitimately more impressive? What is an apostle, a pastor, a man or woman left to boast in if not their strengths, their gifts, their experiences? Well, this leads us to number two, which is proper boasting, powerful boasting. Boasting in personal weaknesses. Personal weaknesses. What Paul moves on to show us is that Jesus loves working through people who know and own their weaknesses. What he's showing us is that God's chosen vessels are not self-proclaimed experts, but self-acknowledging weaklings. God loves working through people who know their weaknesses. In order to illustrate this, Paul paves a new way to finding strength. In doing so, he he recalls how, in fact, he's been humbled in his own life and ministry. Look there in verse 7. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul had experienced some amazing things in his life. And in that light, God wanted to ensure that he didn't find his confidence in any of them. And so somehow, from God, through Satan, a thorn was given in Paul's flesh to keep him from becoming full of himself or full of his experiences or full of his gifts. Now, what this thorn was, we don't really know. Could have been a physical illness. There's lots of hypotheses out there. Could have been chronic pain. Could have been depression. We don't know. The point is, Paul was given something through the Lord's providence to humble him. The thorn pained him. It tortured him. Most importantly, this thing given to Paul by the providence of God consistently reminded him that he is weak. Even Paul, visited by Jesus, experiencing heaven, he was a man beset with all kinds of weaknesses. So what does Paul do with this weakness? What do you do with your weakness? So when I say that, certainly something might fill your mind with a weakness that you hate or a pain that you feel that you want to be rid of. What do you do with that? Well, what does Paul do with it? Verse 8 is interesting. Look there. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul hated this thorn. You can tell because he asked God many times to take it away. So Paul was not this, not this masochist that wanted, wanted pain. That thought he was more holy because he experienced pain. That wasn't it at all. He's praying to God to take pain away. He hated pain. He hated the constant feeling of inadequacy. Paul hated feeling weak. I wonder if any of us can relate to that. You know, I, you know, I think we should know that it's okay to pray for God to remove hard things from our life. That's okay. 
That's what Paul does here. We can ask God to intervene in our trials. We can can ask God to remove things from us that hurt us. But we ask that with this hard truth in mind. He, He might leave the pain right where it is. And somehow, just like Paul, we trust that that's actually for our good. Listen to verse 9. So Paul had begged God to take away this trial. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God, God did not ignore Paul's prayer. God answered Paul's prayer, didn't he? He gave Paul grace, but notice this, instead of the grace of healing, God gives him the grace of endurance. You see that? And what we see here is that God's grace comes to us in many different forms. And the grace we see here is is what it means to be a help, that is, a help you in your pain, not a healing of your pain. So instead of using Paul's strength, God is going to make use of the Spirit's strength through Paul's weakness. So you see, sometimes it seems, instead of making us strong, God shows his strength through our very obvious weakness. And this is where Paul learned that lesson that the super apostles hadn't even sniffed. And that is the lesson that God's strength will only be as apparent as our weakness. God's strength will only be as apparent as our weakness. We cannot seem strong and God seems strong at the same time. We are weak. He is the one who is strong. So think about it. Where we are really strong and gifted and experienced, what need is there for God to show up? He may as well stay away and he does so in some churches. But when we are weak, when we are dependent, when we are needy and so obviously in need of strength beyond ourselves, that's a person, that's a church that God loves to use. Well, if that's the case, then what? In the second half of verse 9 there, he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right, so this is where Paul brings full circle, his point full circle, in relating to these false apostles and their boasting. So Paul says, oh, okay, fine. You want me to, you want me to boast? You want an apostle? You want a pastor who will boast? He says, I'll boast but I'm going to boast in my weaknesses so that Jesus' power, not mine, will be at work in this church. And that is proper. That is powerful boasting. Boasting that is in the gracious power of God working through our very obvious weaknesses. And how will Paul boast? Gladly, he says. Don't you just love that? Gladly, he's boasting in these weaknesses. So over time, with the Spirit's help, Paul became so grateful for this thorn 
the thorn that he hated. They gave him the pain that he hated. It's like he's saying, thank you, Lord, for this thorn, because without it, I just might be foolish enough to think that I'm strong enough, I'm gifted enough, I'm experienced enough to do this without you. Just think about how how susceptible Paul was without these experiences of pain, how susceptible Paul was to, to boast in his great experiences and gifts. And this is what we see, the, the thing that Paul was learning over the course of his ministry. And that is that sometimes we need trials and thorns to wean us off of our dependence on ourselves. Listen to Jesus' words from another book. So the Gospel of John 6.63, he says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Why is, why is Paul so hesitant to boast in gifts and experiences? That is the flesh. Why is he so adamant that churches not listen to preachers who boast in their personal strength? Why is Paul so adamant that we boast and delight in our weaknesses so that we'll rely on the Spirit rather than our flesh? Because he knows it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Francis Schaeffer, the theologian, said it like this. Listen to this quote, I love it. He says, the central problem of our age, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism or anything else that surrounds us. All these dangers are not, are, all these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually, corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than the power of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Paul is begging the church to understand one simple thing. Listen, in in this Christian life, we are so tempted to want the power of the flesh. But what we need is the power of Christ. That is the power of the Spirit. And how is this power of the Spirit, how is the power of Christ manifested in us? Through our weaknesses. So the tragedy, I think, for many modern Christians... The tragedy is not that we don't know our own strength. The tragedy is that we don't know and own our own weaknesses. And when you think about it, you just get so sad when you take a look at the kind of the state of our Christian book and TV culture these days, isn't it? Because we get so many of our own super apostles telling us that, that the goal of Christianity is to search out and find your own inner strength. And if you don't feel strong, there's something wrong with you. You've missed out on what Christianity has to offer you. And church, I just encourage you, that is so wrong. Because much much of the time, Christianity is going to feel weak to our flesh. It will feel like, I don't don't know what to do next. It will feel like, I don't don't know where the money is going to come from. It's going to feel like, I can't change one more diaper. It's going to feel like, I can't pick up one more toy you're going to feel like, I can't go to that, this job one more day. I can't even wake up. I can't get out of bed today. Because Jesus has said, has promised, 
the way that he works is that his power is made perfect in weakness. It's when we own our weaknesses that we begin to know Christ's strength. This is why Paul learned to be content with his weaknesses. If the Lord was going to leave him with weaknesses, Paul would be content. Why is that? Verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I love that he included these things because it kind of expands the realm of our application for us today, doesn't it? So Jesus doesn't just want to help us with thorns in the flesh. He helps us with outward circumstances as well, right? Insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, difficult, all kinds of trials in life. That's where Jesus wants to help us, to be our strength. How, why, how in the world are these things good, according to Paul? So how am I supposed to delight in my life's biggest trials? And Paul says, because it's in those trials, in those sufferings, where our weaknesses are proved. And in case we forgot, when we are weak, it's then we are strong. You know, maybe you're, you're here this morning and you are, you're actually well aware of your weaknesses, you, your hardships, your difficulties. I think this should be a big encouragement to you. So I love how John Calvin puts it. He, he observes that the You know, in life, the mountain peaks may be high and mighty and impressive, but the mountain peaks are dry and they're empty. The valleys, on the other hand, are low and comparatively unimpressive, but they receive the rain and they bear the fruit. You know, church, it may just be that the Lord has made you or put you into a valley And you don't like that. And it's hard. And three times you've asked the Lord to change it, to make you a mountain, so to speak. I just encourage you, the valleys are where the fruit grows. This pattern is not only seen in Paul, it's seen in the Lord Jesus himself, isn't it? You know, if there's one super practical thing the gospel teaches us about life, It said, there's no life without death. God's goal in the gospel was to show forth, think about this, his goal in the gospel was to show forth his power, his strength. And he would do that, he would show forth his power to save sinners from the bondage of their sin. And how did he do that? He humbled himself. He became took on the weakness of a man. And not only was he a man, but he humbled himself to the point of death. And not only death, but he died the humiliating death of a cross. And what did God do through this humiliating, weak act? All he did was triumph over sin and Satan for his people for all eternity. He proved his strength by humbling himself, taking on weakness, and then raising Jesus from the dead, exalting him to the right hand of the majesty on high. And if you haven't forgotten, church, that is the end of the narrow, 
hard path that we're on right now. So listen, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, this is what he's welcoming you into. He wants to show his power in your life by setting you free from your own strengths that you can know supernatural strength by the power of the Spirit in you. You're trying to carry the burden of your sin on yourself. And Jesus says, I will take that from you. You wake up every day, some of us trying to atone for our own sins. And Jesus says, stop trying to atone for your own sins. I took that upon myself. I became weak so that you might be strong. So you might take that burden off of yourself and put it on Christ. This is all the Christian life. To turn from our own strength that rejects God. And turn in our seemingly weak state to God who fills us with his strength by his spirit to live with him for him for all eternity. Listen, without Jesus, think about this, without Jesus taking on weakness, we have no atonement. Without Jesus taking on death, we have no resurrection. This is how God works. Weakness is the way to strength. Death is the way to life. You know, maybe you came here this morning itching for life, thinking, surely this isn't all that life is. And I would just encourage you, take on the death that is repentance. Die to an old, autonomous, independent way of life that burdens you. Turn to Christ who will carry you, strengthen you, take the burden off your back and give you life everlasting. So church, let's boast in, let's make much of our own weaknesses so that God might be seen as strong. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, uh, we pray that you would help us to rightly boast in our weaknesses, to rightly own our trials and temptations as things that would pave a way to dependence on you. Father, I pray particularly for Hamilton Baptist Church that you would, you would show forth the strength of, of Christ, that you show forth the strength of your spirit by working through people who know they in themselves are weak, but who know a God who is infinitely strong. And we praise you. We pray you would get all the glory from our life together. In Jesus' name, amen.